Hello, friends. You want to be a better person. You want to lead a successful life. But what does that even mean or look like? And how should a Christian process this conversation? In this episode, I want to talk about a Christian vision for a successful life. I'm J.C. Schroeder, and this is Bite Size Seminary. of talking about success in this episode is that this is my second time trying to record this. But anyways, this topic has been on my mind a lot over the past several months. So the start of the year is kind of that peak time to develop strategies to be more productive and be a better person. I think a lot of us feel a sort of push-pull in this discussion. We want to be successful. We want our lives to matter. But we also feel this almost unbearable pressure to perform and to achieve. I think deep down, we know that that model of success and productivity that we hear, it really doesn't satisfy. And it ends up just leaving us burnt out. But at the same time, we play the comparison game on Instagram or Facebook, or we even get on Amazon and see that like one item, which we think will make us complete, or at least other people will think that way about us. So we have this sort of push-pull with our world knowing that it won't actually satisfy, but we still just somehow can't get away from it. The question is, how, as Christians, should we think about this? And how do we overcome this? Here's my simple thesis for this issue. It boils down to two things, identity and action. Typically here in America and with Western culture, we place our identity in ourselves. This then forces us to perform or to actuate that perceived identity. Whereas the Bible tells us our identity is in Christ and calls us to rest in his power and work. I think this issue of identity is central to who we are and how we conceptualize success and uh, the good life. If we don't deal with our identity, I think we just risk coming up with sort of a Christianized productivity plan. Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, describes the ramifications of our culture's approach to identity. He says that when the identity of ourselves is built on the self, it is both exciting and terrifying. It's exciting, he says, because we're not doomed to be stuck in the mold of our community or family. But it is also terrifying because it places the meaning of our lives all on ourselves. It's all on me. He calls this the unbearable burden that only leads to weariness. This problem we face with our identity is that I define myself, my identity. So 
I must then, as a result, work and perform to be successful and, and really to feel any sort of value or achievement. In, in other words, my identity and my performance is rooted in myself. That's our world's perspective. So if I fail or I don't succeed the way that I, I think I should or I want to, then I am a failure. It's, it's all on me. If I determine my own identity, then I've got to work. I have to create and express that identity. So we push and push and push, and it is never enough. Now, the solution to this is the biblical view about identity and action for the Christian. Our identity is in Christ and how he has united us with him. And now he calls me to rest in him, to rest in the spirit, to rest in the father. It is God who empowers me to live faithfully before him. Here is what I think the Christian vision is, is that Christ tells me who I am, that I am of worth, that I need to be and can be right with him, and he transforms me. My identity is outside of me. It's not dependent on me, but on Christ. This shapes and transforms my action because I no longer need to perform to define or prove myself. I rest in the Spirit's power and he calls me to be faithful. Notice Jesus' demands of discipleship, which he gives in Mark 8.34. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Denying oneself is not about not indulging in jelly beans. It's about where we place our identity. Our identity needs to be in Christ and his cross. We take on his cross as we follow him. He, He paints this out vividly in the next verses, verses 35 and 37 of Mark 8, where he continues and says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is saying here is, what is the point of controlling your life if it only leads to failure or destruction? The Apostle Paul also describes this in Colossians 2 and 3. Here, he's talking about our sanctification, how to live holy lives before the Lord. But Paul does, I think, something unexpected, or or at least it's different from the way that we normally think about this. He doesn't just start with a list of of do's and then don'ts. He's going to get there, but he first starts with the believer's identity in Christ. Paul uses a lot of with language here in Colossians 2 and 3 to describe our union with Christ as the basis of our identity. We've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. What has happened to him 
has happened to us. He does all of this, Paul does all of this, before any discussion about action. The focus here is on identity and that union with Christ and how that becomes the foundation for the action of the believer. Once this is established, then Paul moves to specific sins that we should not do. He does this in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And then specific virtues we need to inculcate in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. There is comfort and power in knowing that I am not the sum total of my mistakes and that I don't need to keep performing and performing to have value and be loved. This Christian vision for success transforms our identity and worth. It transforms how we view ourselves and how to live. It then also teaches us how to actually live, what is important, and then also make priorities. This is where it gets, I think, more practical and down to earth. Based on this identity in Christ, how does it then filter down to my actual actions, to my calendar, to my to-do list. Though we may understand that our identity is in Christ, a lot of times that doesn't actually translate to our action. This is where I think hustle culture of constantly striving and working meets the church. We put almost like a Christian veneer on our productivity. We need sermons, we need converts, we need programs, and we're constantly working and performing in the name of the Lord. But I fear and I think it quickly devolves into advancing not the Lord, but ourselves. And we end up seeing these things like converts and programs, etc., all these types of things as metrics which become almost sources of, of our success. How do we know our church is succeeding? Well, we've grown this past year in our numbers. We've got more people here. How do I know that that was a good sermon? Well, lots of people came up to me and said, good job, pat on the back. Maybe you got lots of views and likes on YouTube. Now, obviously, I'm not against sermons. I'm not against programs or obviously people coming to Christ, right? My point here, though, is that we should not use these things to slip back into defining ourselves or the church, where it's on us and our own performance. Using these metrics, which can have some value, um, but using these metrics as a, as a measure for success, I think has the language of the gospel, but without the logic of the gospel. Meaning that we use Christian language to justify and to, to do our actions, but it doesn't, our actions don't actually exhibit Christ and don't flow from his story and his mindset and his action. Look at how Paul talks about the mindset and action of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Christ left heaven where when you looked at him, it was obvious that he is God. Then he became, this is the absurd part of the gospel, then he became a human, a slave, and died the most horrific and shameful death of the cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus saw his identity as God to humble himself and to come and to rescue us. This doesn't look like success for him to lower himself, to become a human, to die. That doesn't look like success. That, that looks like failure. But Jesus views it as success. Jesus was not self-absorbed. He sacrificially gave himself. This is the same attitude he calls us to have. Philippians 2.5, the verse that's right before the ones that we just read. It says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He wants us to have his mindset, his actions. And sometimes our actions don't look like they lead to success, but in God's eyes, they do. We are called to live faithfully before God and humbly and sacrificially serve others. I love this quote from David Garland. He says this, since he, Jesus, humbled himself, how can we be proud? Since he took the form of a slave, how can we seek to dominate others? Since he accepted the greatest dishonor, death on a cross, how can we strive after honors? The Lord help us to have his mindset and his action. I frequently get these annoying automatic emails in my Outlook. It says, make today count. And here's all of your commitments and to-do lists. And I just want to say to Mr. AI that sends me this, buzz off. But maybe from the Lord's perspective, making today count doesn't mean cranking out all my emails and checking off a bunch of to-dos. Maybe it's being a neighbor, placing others' priorities above my own. A couple of months ago, I was watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And in one of the episodes, the focus was on Jordan's uh, like strong, strong, strong competitive drive to not just win, but to dominate his opponent. His competitive drive was was so high. And, and a lot of his teammates, they interviewed them in this documentary, a lot of his teammates said that they really didn't like Jordan as a person. They, they hated him. They were afraid of him. Um, they did credit him for pushing them to be better and to win all of those championships. But they said that he was not a nice person, like at all. And after finishing that episode, that specific episode, I, I happened to see this this tweet on Twitter where someone had quoted Nijay Gupta, he's a New Testament scholar, and he was talking about scholarship and the Christian life. And Gupta said this, he's quoted as saying this, you can be elite or you can be Christ-like. You can't be both. And this is right after I just saw the mindset of Michael Jordan, where he had to be elite. And the convergence of, of both of these things just one right after the other. It, it just made me laugh that they were right, that they were stacked right on top of each other. And I think a lot of times in the church, we want to be elite. Maybe we wouldn't be so crass to say that out loud, but in our hearts, we're like, I want to be the best. I am going to be the best. We want to be 
that preacher or that person. And so we subtly move away from being Christ-like. We can easily get into a mode where ministry is not for the Lord, it's for ourselves. And so it's everything now because it's defining us. And so we don't take care of our families. We don't live for the Lord. We don't show compassion towards others. Or on the other hand, we're so concerned with keeping someone as the leader, the as this great preacher, that we overlook their unchristlike behavior. Here, I think that is us keeping the language of the gospel, but failing to see its logic. We must be moved and transformed in our perspectives and in our to-do lists by the story and logic of the gospel. We have to die to self and live the way Christ desires us to live by the power of the Spirit. One of my professors, Mike Whitmer, told us in class, and I'll never forget it, he said this, it might be a sin for you to get an A in this class. This is obviously uh, an academic example, but it applies to, to all areas, I think. We can spend so much time studying or working or whatever that we are not acting as a faithful Christian, as a faithful spouse or faithful parent. We don't want that. And the Lord doesn't want that. That's why he came to give us his identity. That's why he gave us the empowerment to live in him, to rest in him so that we may be faithful before him. Now, does all this mean that we should just kind of settle for second best? We just do the minimum? I don't think so. I I think there is such a thing as holy ambition. But here, it is a desire to glorify God through our actions. Our actions don't define us. Since we have the, the right identity rooted in Christ, then we are able to live rightly. Everything we do is, is not for ourselves, it's for him. We aim to know him and for others to know him. On the practical side, it shapes how we prioritize our tasks. We're not to be lazy. We work hard for the Lord, not ourselves. It is not just about performance or work or accomplishments, but about showing Christ, serving others, embodying Christ to others. This shapes, I think, how we work, not just what we work. It's not just of what we do, but how we do it. It reminds us that Christ is concerned with what we do, but he's also concerned about what type of people we are. People who are compassionate, people who are kind, selfless, humble. We then need wisdom to discern what the Lord calls each and every one of us to do and where to spend our time. But first, our focus is on embodying Christ and being faithful to him. Now, this brings up the uncomfortable question, what about when we have not been faithful? When we have failed to live into our identity? I just want to remind you, the Lord is ready to forgive. When we sin, whether it's momentarily 
or habitually, there needs to be repentance. There needs to be that turning back to God. And the wonderful thing about the Lord is that he is ready to forgive. I love Psalm 130, which says that with the Lord, there is forgiveness. There is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Think about that for for just a moment. Plentiful redemption. Not just redemption, but plentiful redemption. It is enough. That's why Jesus said, it is finished when he was on the cross. If you have failed, that does not mean you are a failure. And you should just give up now. James 4.8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that an awesome promise? 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I love how Paul connects God's faithfulness to our identity and union with Christ. Why would he be faithful to us when we have been faithless? For he cannot deny himself. There may be consequences for our sin. But there is forgiveness and redemption with the Lord. He loves to forgive and continues to transform our minds, our desires, our actions to align with him if we allow him. The Lord can heal a broken life into a faithful life. Some of us may need a wake-up call reminding us of our true calling. Others may need encouragement to continue on the right path. And maybe that just depends on the time of day. Remember who called you. Remember how we are united with him. Our identity is in Christ. And he calls us to live faithfully before him by the power of the Spirit. That's all I have for today. I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you. And thanks so much for listening to me. We'll see you next time.